That was awesome. Did our kids just rap in church? Is that what just happened? <laughs> I love it so much. Hey, uh, what a privilege to get to worship with you this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Cody. I'm the senior pastor, and uh, we're going to dive into the Word of God together. And so would you please open a Bible to the book of Joshua? And we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, you'll find Joshua chapter 10 on page 191 in that pew Bible. And I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning and keep your Bible open as we go through this. There's several places where I'm going to refer back to it, and I want you to have it right there so uh, you can uh, follow along and uh, track with us through the passage. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 27 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Question for you. Uh, of all the things you prayed for this past week, did you pray for courage? Of all the people you prayed for last week, all the situations they're facing, did you pray for any of them that God would give them courage? When you think about the new year, which is right around the corner, and the kind of person you want to become in the next year is one of your resolutions about becoming a person of courage. And I wonder, how would people describe you of all the adjectives they could use to describe what you are like? Could someone describe you as a person of courage? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be courageous. You have reason to be courageous. And it should be a defining characteristic of God's people and His church that we face every situation and a future that in ways is uncertain with an unwavering courage. And Joshua chapter 10 teaches us the lesson about courage. What are we talking about when we talk about courage? Here's where we have to be careful. We have a common understanding of what courage is and looks like. But I want to remind you that the very idea of courage belonged to God before it belonged to the world. Just like love is defined by God first, just like grace exists in God first, so too courage belongs to God before it belongs to the world. So what are we talking about when we're talking about biblical courage? Let me give you my definition of courage. Not because my definition is the best, um, but I feel like this resonates with the passage we're studying today and with what the Bible describes to us. Courage is this. It is communion with God that produces bold perseverance. It's communion with God, so it starts with relationship. Common courage we, we, is something that we, we pull from within. Like I'm going to steel myself, ready myself for the challenge in front of me, so I'm going to dig from within. Look, I don't know about you, I'm not exactly carrying deep reservoirs of courage in me. I can scoop from the shallows, but, but that's not going to get me very far. But true courage, biblical courage, begins with a relationship with God. And when your life is connected to the sovereign, loving, omnipotent God of salvation, then you draw courage from a well that never runs dry. In Joshua chapter 10, courage is the way God is shaping His people. 
It can be easy in our study of Joshua to get lost in all of the warfare, and there's a lot. A lot of battles, a lot of fighting, especially here chapters 10 and 11. It's just one right after the other. And you might sort of gloss over in your reading of these passages. And if you do, you're going to miss out on what God is doing in his people. This is not just the rehearsal of warfare. Joshua isn't here just to give us battle after battle. But rather, in these battles, God is shaping a people for himself. He's changing Israel into a promised land people. And so what kind of people get to dwell with the Lord? It's going to be a courageous people. What kind of people inherit the promise of God? It's going to be people of courage, people of bold perseverance. What is life like without courage? In the absence of courage, there's a gap that can be filled with all kinds of awful things. Fear, Anxiety, terror, weak faith. Without courage, we're going to suffer damage and defeat that we otherwise should not. It's God's desire that you would be courageous. Not macho, courageous. He wants you to face this day and tomorrow and every future day we have until we stand before him with bold perseverance as he carries you through. And you need to be courageous. Not for the fight that's coming, but for the fight that's already here. There is an enemy seeking to devour you. And you've got to be courageous today. Courageous people don't go looking for a fight, but they are ready when the fight comes to them. And so my goal in preaching this passage today is to fortify your courage In Joshua chapter 10, we're going to see three ingredients of an ironclad courage. That's where I want us to go this morning. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 27. And here's the setting before we read. Uh, You, we first, uh, when we start reading, you're going to meet the bad guys. We get introduced to the bad guys first, and these bad guys are forming a coalition against the Gibeonites. And you might remember from last week, chapter 9, we met Gibeon. They are Israel's new best friends. They are allied together. And so when we read the bad guys form a coalition, they're going to go on the attack against Gibeon, and then Gibeon sends out word for Israel to come and help, and Israel does just that. So follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai Zedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Therefore, King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoam of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Jephiah of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. 
Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ihalon. And the moon, or excuse me, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day? There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. It was reported to Joshua, the five kings have been found, they're hiding in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay here. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to the fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me out of there. This is what they did. They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees, and they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave, and the stones are still there today. This is a story about courage. Don't lose sight of that. It's a story about courage. How does God form his people? How does he change them in this story? He turns them into people of courage. And this account gives us three ingredients of iron-clad courage. I want you to leave here with some strength in your legs today. So what are those three ingredients of ironclad courage? The first is this, it's God's sovereign call to action. 
How is it that you can have courage with whatever you're facing today and whatever you're going to face tomorrow? Well, one of the ways is through God's sovereign call to action. And so the chapter opens with an introduction to this Old Testament axis of evil. We've got these five kings from southern Canaan who are allied together against Israel. You've got Adonai Zedek. I mean, is there a better bad guy name than Adonai Zedek? With a name like that, you're bound to be a bad guy. Adonai Zedek from Jerusalem. So you've got to remember, before Jerusalem was the city of David uh, and the holy city, it was a pagan Canaanite outpost. So Adonai Zedek from Jerusalem, you've got King Hoham of Hebron, King Pyram of Jarmuth, King Jephiah of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon. Now, I want you to know we're talking about real people in history, real places. And so let me show you a map of these cities. Can I get a woohoo for the map? Yeah. Kids choir and a map on the same Sunday. Buckle up. I mean, I hope on Thursday... When your family sits around the Thanksgiving table and everyone goes around and says one thing that they're thankful for, you'll say biblical maps. I mean, dynamite. They're great. If you can't see this, I'm sorry. This is the same map that is uh, out in the upper lobby. Uh, If you don't have one, I hope you'll take it. If your Bible doesn't have this map, I I hope you'll take one with you. Um, But let me just give you sort of the lay of the land here, okay? You see two black rectangles, maybe, in this, on the map. Uh, the one in the very center is Gilgal. That's Israel's home base. That's their camp. They, they return there and leave from there multiple times in the story of Joshua. The square to the left is Gibeon. Th- those are our new best friends from chapter 9. You remember that they have formed a treaty with Israel. Even though it was formed by deception, Israel still has to keep their oath to Gibeon. So Gibeon comes under attack. They throw up the bat signal. Israel comes to the rescue. Underlined to the south are these five uh, cities that these wicked kings are from. And at the very southern part of it is Makeda. It gets referenced multiple times as a place where battle happens in this story. The battle covers this broad range of territory from Gibeon. That's where the kings attack. And then south of there, Azekah, all the way down to Makeda, is just warfare happening all over the place as Israel routes the enemies of Gibeon and of God's people. Okay? So, uh, you You've got this warfare going on, but before it goes on, there's an important conversation that happens between God and Joshua. So I want you to look at verse 8 in your Bible. I want you to see what God said to Joshua. Look at what God told him in verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, right, these five kings. Don't be afraid of them, for I've handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. Does that sound familiar at all if you've been with us in our study of Joshua? Does that line sound familiar? It should sound familiar. Not one of them will stand against you because the book of Joshua opens with that line. In chapter 1, verse 5, God spoke that same exact line to Joshua to not be afraid or discouraged because not one of his enemies would stand against him. Look, I think there's something important here for you and I to pick up on that in moments of crisis, God fortifies us 
with old promises. Not stale promises, but old promises that are still full of life and strength and vibrancy. A lot of times we're looking for a new word, the new revelation, the new direction. But doesn't God often take us back to these old, strong fortresses of promises to steady us in times of crisis? And so according to verse 8, why should Joshua not be afraid? It's because even though the battle hasn't yet been fought, God has already handed Israel the victory. This is the sovereignty of God on display. He's telling Joshua, here's how things are going to go. God's not guessing. God's not wishing. He's telling him, this is what I have decreed. I've ordered these things to happen this way. The victory is yours. Here's God's sovereignty on display. And how does Joshua respond to God's sovereignty? Look at verse 9. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. So when God displayed his sovereignty, when he told Joshua, the victory is yours, Joshua did not then just stay at camp and twiddle his thumbs, celebrating a theology of the sovereignty of God. He got his guys and he went. Don't you think they ran fast through the night knowing what the Lord had decreed? God's sovereignty compels Joshua to action. In verse 8, God is the actor. In verse 9, Joshua is the actor. Now look at verse 10. Who's the actor in verse 10? The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Ezekiah and Makeda. All right. There are four verbs in verse 10. And here's your assignment. You have to decide who gets the verbs in verse 10. It's going to depend on your translation of the Bible. Now those four verbs are at the top here. Threw them, defeated them, chased them, struck them. It was a bad day for the bad guys. All these things happened to them. But who gets the verbs? Who did the throwing, the defeating, the chasing, the striking? Well, if you have... A translation of the Bible that is NIV, New International Version, or ESV. Well, the first verb is given to God. God is the one who threw them into confusion. And then Israel defeats them, Israel chased them, Israel struck them down. But if you have a CSB, which is our sanctuary translation, or maybe you have a New American Standard Bible, God gets all four of those verbs. God threw them into confusion. God defeated them. God chased them. God struck them down. What does this mean? One, it means that Bible translation is really hard work. It's a challenging task for translators of the Bible to take ancient languages and to put them into modern English. It's hard work. And this is not saying that some translations of the Bible are untrustworthy and others are more trustworthy, or we've got to do away with one and do with the other, or one's liberal and one's... That's not what this exercise is about. It's just showing the difficulty in translating the Bible. Now, if we were well-versed in biblical Hebrew, what we would find in verse 10 is it seems that all four of these verbs are assigned to God. And that's odd to us because 
Isn't Israel the one who went into battle? Isn't Israel the one who pulled out their swords and beat these bad guys? Well, yeah, that's true. But the text seems to be making the point that though Israel was swinging the sword, God was the one who was doing the fighting. God is the one who is credited with the victory in verse 10. So in verse 8, God's the actor by His sovereignty. Verse 9, Joshua's the actor. He takes uh, flight in the middle of the night. In verse 10, we have God and Israel working together. God's sovereignty propels Israel into action. And this is the source of Israel's courage. Why do they take on these fearsome five kings? Why do they go into battle with this monumental coalition? They do so with courage because God has decreed victory is yours. I've handed them over to you. And so our courage goes through the roof when we act on what God has sovereignly decreed. God doesn't ask us to be courageous in the face of things that are uncertain or unknown or a future that hangs in the balance and maybe God wins, maybe God doesn't. No, God has spoken. The victory is His. The battle is finished and God's people can move forward with courage. And it doesn't matter how big the enemy appears or how impossible the situation seems, when God speaks, the situation is settled. Your courage is strengthened when you know I'm following the word of the Lord, what God has spoken. I'm putting everything on. I'm moving forward in obedience to God's revealed will. But there are times when we will face situations when we don't know God's revealed will. We don't know what God has spoken about in this one specific situation. But that's okay. That doesn't mean we're going to lack courage in that moment because our courage ultimately is not only in what God has said, it's in who God is. You may not know God's plan, but you always know God's character. So even if the future seems uncertain, your courage shouldn't fail because you know who you're walking into that future with. A God who's sovereign, a God who's loving, a God who's mighty, a God who's compassionate, a God who's victorious. So when your sovereign God says to you, I've got this, your courage moves you forward. So how do we have courage? How do we strengthen our courage? We strengthen it with this knowledge that God is sovereign and he is calling us into action. There's a second ingredient of ironclad courage in this story. And that second ingredient is this. God hears your prayer. How can you be a person of courage? I know that God hears my prayer. And the story makes this abundantly clear to us in verses 12 to 15. I want us to read this paragraph again because I want to make sure you capture the details of the story. So look at verse 12 in your Bible with me. And it says this. It says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of Ihalon. All right, pause right there for a moment. As we're reading this, you need to know that what we're reading takes place before verse 9. Verse 9, run through the night, surprise attack, defeat the bad guys. How does all that happen? Well, what we're reading here in verses 12 to 15 is how that happens. If you and I tell a story, we tell it in a very linear fashion. This, then this, then this. 
But Bible writers, they tell stories like kaleidoscopes. This happened, and then, oh yeah, this over here, and this over here, and this over here. So that's what's happening here. So verse 12, Joshua prayed to God in the presence of Israel, sun stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ihalon. Verse 13, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. There's a lot going on here. In case you didn't know this, I think chapter 10 is the most difficult chapter in all of Joshua. Just, there's a lot of, a lot of issues happening that we've got to make sense of. It's not a chapter we can just read fast. But what's going on here in this little paragraph we just read? Hey, let's talk first about the book of Jashar, mentioned in verse 13. What is the book of Jashar? Well, the book of Jashar is also mentioned someplace else in the Bible. It shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. And the book of Jashar appears to have been a collection of poems in praise of certain heroes of Israel, along with a historical accounts of their achievements. The book of Jashar does not exist today. We don't have it laid up someplace. You can't find it. You can't go look at it. It's just referenced by these Old Testament writers. If you go on Amazon and you type in book of Jashar, something's going to pop up. And there's a a well-known forgery that came on the scene back in the 1800s. It's all cuckoo. It's not... It's, it's not an actual thing. Book of Jashar does not exist. We don't have it anymore. All we have about it are these Old Testament references, okay? Um, but why is the book of Jashar mentioned here? It's mentioned here because the writer knows that what he has just described sounds unbelievable, even to ancient peoples. And so he references the book of Jashar as another way of verifying the truthfulness of this account, So what is it that happened on this day? In the midst of this battle, something happened. What was it? I'm going to give you three options. You get to choose which one you like or none of the above. That's up to you, all right? How do we make sense of this scene with sun and moon and all of that? Three different options for you. One is that God extended the day. And I think that's the most popular approach to this account. When we think about this story, we think of the sun standing still in the sky. And the reason God would have extended the day, according to the passage, was so that Israel could fight longer until they conquered their enemies. Another option is that God extended the darkness. And this is not an outlandish option for how to understand this passage. Remember verse 11 The Lord threw great hailstones on the enemy kings and their armies. And more people died from the hailstones than died from Israel's swords. And so hailstorms don't happen on sunny days. And so it's possible that God extended the darkness so that the battle would continue. Uh, and, And it's possible that what Joshua prayed for is not that God would stop the movement of the planets, but that he would stop their shining So it's possible that God extended the darkness. A third option is that this is just poetic hyperbole. The same sort of language is found in Habakkuk 3.11. 
Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. It could just be poetic hyperbole. You will find Bible-believing people, Christ-following people in all three of these camps. There's not one that's the faithful uh, camp and others are unfaithful. Uh, but you just got to know you've got options. And this is, this is the fun of the mystery of the Word of God. There's just a lot of things we're not going to know till we get to heaven and we start peppering people with questions. Where do I stand? You don't have to agree with me on this. You're free to disagree. I'm out on option three. I don't think it's poetic hyperbole because I think something real, historical, supernatural happened. And it's also not the writer of Joshua style to just drop in poetry throughout the account. That would be really random if all of a sudden he's like, oh, poem time, zing, 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 and, and here we have it. So uh, I'm out on option three. Option two is really appealing to me. It makes a lot of sense with the hailstorm and all this other stuff. Um, but when you read verse 13, it talks about the sun setting, and that poses a problem for option two. But still, there are good people who love the Lord and who fall into camp two. With all the difficulties of it, I'm going with option one. And it doesn't bother me a minute for someone to say, how can you be a modern person with what we know of planets and orbits and all of these things and say the sun stood still? I'm not worried about the mechanism and neither should you. So whether, whether God froze the cosmos or he put his angel in the sky to extend the light that day, I don't know how he did it. I'm not bothered to figure out why. I just know he did something supernatural and historical that gave his people the victory on that day. You don't have to make apologies for the Bible, friend. You don't have to be ashamed of stories that seem outrageous. You think this is wild? Wait till you read about Easter morning. It's going to blow your mind. God did something historical and supernatural on this day. And if I were to give you a pop quiz right now, and the question were this, what is the miracle of Joshua chapter 10? You would answer, the sun stood still. And I would only give you partial credit because you forgot verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. According to the writer of Joshua, you know what made this day unique? Not what happened in the sky, but that God heard Joshua's prayer. It was a bold prayer, but still, God listened to Joshua's prayer. Now, when we read verse 14, I didn't hear anybody or gasp, and, and no one clutched their pearls, because this is so common to us. Prayer is so natural and common and easy to us. But we don't understand the incredible privilege we have in Christ of speaking to the sovereign God who exists outside of space and time, and He hears your prayer. We don't understand what a big deal that is, but it's massive. It's incredible. It's headline-making, not just in the book of Joshua, but also in the book of Jashar. It was headline news then, and it's headline news now that every time you say this line, our Father who art in heaven, He hears it. Every prayer He hears and it's astounding that God hears our prayers. It's the stuff that makes praise music. And 
ancient Israel sang praises to God over and over because he heard their prayers. And so in Psalm chapter 6, verse 8, he hears our weeping. And in Psalm 10, 17, he hears our desires. In Psalm 18, 6, he hears our voices. In Psalm 28, 6, he hears our pleading. In Psalm 40, verse 1, he hears our cry for help. And in Psalm 116, verse 1, he hears our cry for mercy. What does it do to your courage to know that God hears your prayer? Hey, that sort of courage is stronger than titanium. And doesn't Joshua's example compel us to do away with lazy, mindless praying? And instead to step forward with bold prayers before our God. I want to encourage you to follow Joshua's example. I want to encourage you to pray bold prayers. Don't be afraid to pray a bold prayer. Here's our comfort. If if we pray something that is outside the will of God, if we come with a bold prayer to God and it is not in line with what God wants for our lives or with uh, with His will, Romans chapter 8 tells us that God the Holy Spirit fixes our prayer on the way up. And I promise you, we have already in our prayer lives given him plenty to work with. Because whether we're praying bold prayers or tiny prayers, sometimes we're just, we're off base. And our God of grace fixes those prayers. He's not going to give us the bad thing we pray for. He's going to give us his will perfectly. And so why not come boldly before the throne of grace? And pray a bold prayer. What's something bold you need to pray today? I mean, planet freezing boldness. What do you need to pray today? Don't be afraid. Don't pray bossy. And don't pray prideful. But pray boldly. Pray humbly. Pray often. Your heavenly Father will not leave you or abandon you. And this fortifies your courage. Courage comes from God's sovereign call to action. It comes from God hearing our prayers. And finally, the third ingredient of ironclad courage is God conquers the enemy. God completely routes the enemy. In verses 16 to 27, we have the account of Joshua's dispatch of the five kings and their armies. If this is your first Sunday with us, no doubt as I read through that, you were shocked by the brutality of that story. Here's what you need to know, first-timers. We've already encountered this sort of brutality multiple times in our study of Joshua, Uh, so I don't intend to spend a lot of time with it here. We've got a resource that can help you make sense of this. On our welcome desk is an article that talks about this brutality. And so the more shocked you were by it, the, the more upset you were by it, the more you need to read that article or... Call me this week, and well, early this week, and let's get together and talk uh, about what's happening here and how we make sense of it, okay? Uh, so, uh, because the, the brutality certainly needs to be dealt with and understood, but it's not off-putting when you understand the context around it. Now, the key verses in this whole passage are verses 24 and 25. The whole reason we're talking about courage this morning is because of that scene, verses 24 and 25. I want you to look at it with me in your Bible. 
It says, when they had brought the kings to to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, come here, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. I mean, imagine the scene. Those five kings drug out of that cave, laid on the ground. Joshua calls five of his military leaders. Hey, foot on the neck, foot on the neck, foot on the neck, foot on the neck, foot on the neck. Stand there. And in the presence of everyone, he gives them this speech. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous. For the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. It is a sign reassuring them of God's might and the victory that the Lord is handing over to his people, Israel. Don't you think his soldiers needed that assurance? And this is how God works often throughout the Bible. He gives his people signs to encourage them. Think about Noah. Noah is given a rainbow in the sky uh, in order to feel secure. Abraham was pointed to the stars in the sky to remember God's promise of descendants. One writer commenting on this said this. He said, there's a kind of mystery in these signs because we don't understand fully how they work. Who can explain how eating bread and drinking wine assures us that the crucified and risen Jesus will now and always sustain us? We just know that they are ways in which God props up our weak faith. So the point of this sign in particular here in chapter 10 is that with God, every battle is finished and the victory is won. And I wonder, do we have a sign like that still? We have a sign better than that one. A sign that we've already sung about, a sign that we read about this morning, and that sign is an empty tomb. At the cross, Jesus Christ won the victory once and for all. He walked out of that tomb having conquered death and Satan forever and ever. Every Sunday we gather in this room, we have this sign in front of us to remind us that the battle is won. The victory is ours. Christ has won once and for all. Christ's death and resurrection assures us that every enemy is defeated. He crushed the head of the serpent. And his church is victorious with him. So brothers and sisters, you will not face any hardship, any trial, any enemy where the outcome is in doubt. And I know that might be an outrageous statement because I don't know what you carried in here with you this morning. But I believe the word of God for myself that we will not face any enemy that is not already defeated. We will take blows. There will be hardships. There will be scars and wounds, but our God sustains us through them all. So brothers and sisters, be strong and courageous. That's what Joshua told his soldiers. And have you heard that before in our study of Joshua? Absolutely you have. Over and over again in this first half of the book of Joshua, we hear that refrain. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. But you got to know this. This is the last time you will hear it in the book of Joshua. This is it. The last time. The first time we heard it, do you know who said it? God did. 
God told Joshua, be strong and courageous in chapter 1. And now here, who's the last person to speak it? Joshua. This man of fear has become a man of courage in the Lord. And what the Lord has given him, he's now giving to his people. Be strong and courageous. Joshua knows and you know that God has defeated every enemy. The victory is ours and our courage is ironclad. So what are the ingredients of an ironclad courage? Here's what Joshua 10 has given us this morning. First of all, it's God's sovereign call to action. And then second, it's God who hears our prayers. And third, God has defeated every enemy. And we can rephrase it this way, much simpler. We are people of courage because of what God has spoken, because of what God has heard, and because of what God has done. So how does a fearful person become a person of courage in the Lord? Remember our definition, courage begins with communion with God, with a nearness to Him. And so I want you to imagine this scene with me. Let's really engage our imaginations for a moment and imagine that you get swept away and brought before the throne of God. And this is just for a moment. You realize this is a temporary visit. And you stand before the throne of God, and it's it's impossible to describe the majesty, the glory, the intense holiness that you are in the presence of. But here's our triune God, Father, Son, Spirit in front of you. And around His throne, all the angels of heaven. And then surrounding the throne, people every people group from planet earth all gathered together praising him rejoicing him you are taking it all in and then somehow out of all those people the triune god speaks to you and he says i will never leave you nor forsake you just to you all these people and he speaks to you And you speak back, God help me. And you know He hears you. And all those people, He hears your voice. And about that time, your cell phone dings because there's great reception in heaven. And you look at your phone, and here's a text message, and it says, The doctor called, and you got to call him back. You afraid of that call? The message, next message says, hey, something's going on with your kid. You're going to be okay knowing that this God loves your kid more than you do? What possible message could come that in the face of the eternal God of your salvation would make you wilt? There's not a single thing, I'm telling you. But in the presence of God, sovereign, glorious, mighty, omnipotent, eternal, and you face every challenge with courage, every single one. He's not going to let you down. He's true to his word. So if God speaks, you got to hear what he's saying. And if God is listening, you have to pray to him. And if God has acted, then you need to stand up and move forward. 
It's courageous people who have been much with God. Joshua 10 is an invitation to sit with him. And what if you don't know Christ as your Savior? What if you're not a believer? Listen, you need courage, but not just as one piece of your character. Here's here's the deal. Without Christ, you have nothing but fear. You have no answer for the decay of the world, the brokenness of your life. And this world is in the condition it's in because of us. We are the sinners. We're the rebels against God, every single one of us. And I'm telling you, there's no way that you on your own are going to be able to walk into your future and overcome the enemy who holds your soul. But you're not alone. You're loved. And here's how we know you're loved. Because God the Father sent God the Son to die in your place for your sin. Even though you're the sinner, you're the rebel against Him. Christ died in your place. He's the only one that could do this. He died in your place for your sin at the cross. Three days later, He rose from the dead. It's recorded here in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, the book of John, the book of Mark. All of these eyewitnesses testify to the truthfulness of this account. That the God who makes the planets and who can freeze the planets, the God who has ordered your life and your steps, who knows you by name and loves you, He has made a way for you to be rescued from your sin and its penalty and power forever. He calls you to Himself. Would you turn your life to Christ today? Would you stop running from him? Would you let his victory be your victory by turning from your sin and turning to Christ in faith? And there, eternal life is yours. Forgiveness is yours. Love is yours. Life is yours. Courage is yours. Without God, life is terrifying. But with God, we will join with the early church in this bold declaration of courage that comes from Hebrews chapter 13 verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Brothers and sisters, be strong and courageous. Let's pray together. Father, we proclaim your word for our souls and for your praise. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Father, you are our helper. We will not be afraid. Because sin is defeated. Death is done. At the cross, you have won the victory for your children. Father, we praise you for this. So, Lord, give us courage for this day. I know that we don't walk out of here with courage. We walk out of here like this is a starting line, not a finish line. A starting line to the week ahead where we need to be much with you so that our courage would be fortified. We would not be fearful. We would not be people of weak faith. We would not be afraid or discouraged. But, Father, we would be courageous. Help us to be courageous with the cross. And in the face of every challenge to walk with you. Having heard your voice having spoken to you in prayer, taking steps forward, Father, help us. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that this day they would turn from their sin, from every fearful thing, and they would run to you. Faster than Joshua ran through the night to Gibeon, Lord, let them run to you today to embrace what is theirs by faith in Christ, to know that every enemy is defeated, that eternal life is theirs. 
Father, may we be a courageous church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.